0: today is is Transfiguration Sunday and it's it's a story that I think for a lot of my uh, life in the church I have kind of ignored because um, I don't it doesn't make sense to me I, I don't know what to do with the Transfiguration and exactly, what it means, and so i 'm going to try to reach a little bit and we 're going to do this kind of briefly because we're trying to keep our our service a little shorter today so that we can get on to the work of packing a moving truck and getting out of here in a timely sort of matter but today here at the at the end of epiphany, the end of this season that we have been journeying through these last several weeks, we come to this moment and This moment is a kind of doubling down on everything we've been talking about for the last seven weeks, since the beginning of Epiphany. That this has been a season of revelation. This has been a season of God making God's self known to us. This whole idea of Epiphany. And today we double down as we prepare to carry these realities of who God is and the ways that God makes himself known to us. We prepare to carry all of that into a new season, the season of Lent. When we talk about Jesus, and I say we, like I mean specifically myself, and you often hear us talk about Jesus from this space, and oftentimes we have talked about the the kind of hiddenness of Jesus, the way that God tends to tuck himself away in our lives in some ways that aren't overt, in ways that aren't really obvious. And I think all of that's true. But I think there's also a way that we talk about the hiddenness of Jesus in a way that leads us to think that somehow Jesus is a a, a veiled revelation, of God. Like somehow we don't see the fullness of who God is that somehow Jesus again exists behind this kind of veil. And that's not what we mean by hiddenness. Jesus is the full revelation, is everything that God has to say about himself. Jesus is the full revelation of that. And it's not that Jesus is veiled and we can't really see what God is doing. It's that we see Jesus with veiled faces. The hiddenness of Christ, again, is not a veiled Christ. Today, quickly, I want to walk us through uh, the texts that were offered today and shed a little bit of light, that's a a transfiguration joke, Uh, on what I think these texts are saying to us as a community. First, a little bit of of context. All of our texts today exist on a, a mountaintop. And when we talk about mountaintops, we're meant to read that these are kinds of, that they're ways of talking about a nearness to God. Not that God exists distant or apart from us, but that the mountain signifies this kind of journey that we take as we're searching and seeking after God, and whether it's Moses, or whether it's Elijah or the disciples, they all find something of what they're looking for on these mountaintops today. These mountaintop experiences, they're also supposed, supposed to point out the fact that the God of Israel, that Yahweh, isn't like the pagan gods of the other nations who are distant. That this is the God who has come close to us, This God who is accessible, and when this God comes close to us, he leaves us marked in a certain way. This obviously isn't the first time that we see Moses on top of a mountain here in the Gospels. Remember, the very first time that Moses comes down from the mountain, he's been given the law. He's been given the Ten Commandments, which is a covenant that God has made with his people, a kind of promise that God has made with us. And when he makes his way down, if you remember the story, he finds the people of God that they've built this golden calf. And they've built this for themselves. And I think it's important for us to realize that this was not a different God they were making. It's not like they'd been worshiping the God of Israel and suddenly they're worshiping a different God. They make this calf to be for themselves a representation of this God that they cannot see. And so, In some ways, this is an attempt at a kind of act of faithfulness, that they they need a kind of experience with this God who they haven't seen and they haven't heard and they can't touch. And so they create this calf as a way of providing for them an experience of being able to see the God that they're worshiping, to touch the God that they're worshiping, that it becomes this tangible reality for them. And so in this whole moment of anger, Moses comes down off the mountain. He sees what the people of God are doing, and he throws the tablets at them, and they break. And so he goes back up the mountain once again. One of the ways that I think God has been working in our community, one of the kind of points of transformation and transfiguration for sanctuary is that we've, we've transformed into a kind of community that resists the temptation for experience. That just like the people of God, we are always faced with this temptation of creating for ourselves these moments and these kinds of experiences that give us something to point back to. And experiences are fine. I I don't want to get down on experiences because oftentimes we need these kinds of experiences. We need these markers of faith in our lives as things that we can point back to and return to. But the experience is not the thing. The experience is not the bottom line. And that's one of the things that I think God has been doing in sanctuary for a long time now is helping us to resist this temptation to seek experiences and instead chase after what it is to be people who are formed into the likeness of Christ. God isn't after us having this hopper of exciting emotional experiences, but he wants for us a life that is transformed into the image of Jesus. So our first text today, Exodus 34 Here, Moses is coming down the mountain again after the tablets have been broken and he's caught the people of God worshiping this golden calf. He's coming down once again after another face to face encounter, his own kind of experience with God. He's carrying fresh tablets, and the text says that his face was shining, but he didn't know it, he wasn't aware that this was happening. So here's Moses, he's coming down out of this mystical kind of moment, entering into the mundane of what's happening at the bottom of the mountain, and he's bearing the word of God. Like Mary, he is is carrying the word into the presence of the people. And as a result, just like the priestly blessing, God has turned his face and shined on Moses. And because of that, Moses' face is now shining out onto the people. And what's interesting is that the text tells us that it's Aaron and the elders who greet Moses. And what they find out is as they see Moses' face shining, they're afraid. And we should be asking ourselves, well, why? Why are they they afraid in this moment? And this, this isn't just an oddity. The reason that they are afraid isn't because they see this as a kind of circus trick, some kind of gimmick. They realize that Moses has had an encounter with the other and has brought the other directly back to them. And remember, throughout the text, throughout the scriptures, what we see over and over and over again, as angels appear to people, what do they have to say? First thing out of their mouths, don't be afraid if a... You want to go ask my wife how she feels about angels, feel free to grab her after service because she is not interested in having any encounter with angels because of this point. No angel ever shows up and people are like, we're glad you're here. (laughs) The angel shows up and they freak out to the point where the angel has to go, don't be afraid. And Moses has the same kind of response to Aaron and to the elders. He sees the fear on their faces, and he says to them, come near. He extends to them this invitation to come and get close and see that it's it's just me. So here Moses recognizes that they're afraid. He calls them close. Moses isn't freaked out by their fear. He's not made afraid by their fear. He just extends this invitation to come close. And what I think we're supposed to see here is that invitation, this invitation to come close, to see, is the work in Moses that God is doing. Because he is the one who has been invited now to come close before God. That Moses was the one who, called, who was called close to the burning bush, you remember. At the beginning of Moses' calling, he is the one who comes upon this experience of the other, this burning bush in the wilderness, and God says, come close and take off your shoes. This is holy ground. And now Moses is the one who has come down off the mountain. He is in the wilderness with the people again, but he is the burning bush that's shining in the wilderness. And he says to Aaron and to the elders, come close. Come close. But this doesn't last very long. The longer that Moses is around the people, the longer he's aware of these realities of his shining and of their fear of this shining, the more he reverts back to this place of self-doubt that he had when he was encountering God in the burning bush. Remember, he gives all of these reasons why he can't be the person that God is calling him to be. And so we're led to believe that this is what causes Moses to veil his face, to veil himself between these encounters with God. Fast forward now to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. This is out of 2 Corinthians uh, 3. And a little bit of context here. What's happening in this moment is Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians as a kind of response to what he Jokingly, mockingly refers to as the super apostles. And these super apostles were these teachers from Jerusalem. They were a little more eloquent. They were a little bit fancy. People liked them a little more than they liked Paul. They had bigger churches. They wore cooler sneakers. And Paul is saying, yeah, 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 we get that you're there's appeal here. You're attracted to this idea, but don't forget that we were the ones who carried the word of God to you. And so Paul is like making his appeal to the church in, in Corinth. He's making his case. And in doing so, Paul invokes this story of Moses. And he suggests that Moses, by veiling himself, is afraid of his own weakness. Remember, Moses is dealing with self-doubt, realizing that he is this kind of shining presence, and all of those moments of the burning bush are flooding back, and so he veils his face. And so Paul says that Moses' veiling was, in fact, Moses trying to save face. But we could also read it as Moses doesn't want God to lose face in the sight of Israel. And we could also read it as Moses wants Israel to save face in light of the nations. And I think all of these readings are true, but the thing that it seemed like Moses was trying to protect is this idea that God's glory fades. If God's glory fades away from us, how do we remain faithful? So he veils himself. Essentially, what Moses is arguing is that If Moses loses faith with the people, they'll lose faith in God. And Paul says this is what he was trying to protect. And then Paul suggests that this is the kind of thing that these super apostles are dealing in. They are people who are interested in saving face. They are the people who are interested in projecting themselves in a certain kind of light, protecting an image, all so that the people in Corinth don't lose faith in God. And Paul says, we are not interested. We are not going to manage our image in the same way that Moses did. He says in verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, we use great boldness. He says, we're not like Moses who used to veil his face. What does Paul mean when he says boldness? That boldness is a way of saying that this is not about saving face. This is not about protecting and managing our image as we're part of a community. Paul says that we have come, these leaders, he says that we have come by the power of the Spirit, and you all know this. He says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, liberty. But freedom and liberty, these, these are not... Political ideas, freedom and liberty, this is not the freedom to just do what we want. Paul suggests that freedom, the kind of freedom that the Spirit brings into our lives, is the freedom to be who we are, the freedom to exist with one another without having to protect ourselves, without having to try and save face and guard our image in the midst of community. This is the freedom from the rules of shame and from the rules of judgment. And the word for you and the word for me today is that when I'm not protecting my image and when you're not saving face, we can all be transformed into the image of Christ. That's the point. That's why we show up. That's why we are free to be who God wants us to be. Not so that we look a certain way within a community, but so that we can be transformed into the kind of people God imagines us to be. Paul is telling them, again, as a defense against these super apostles, that you have been ashamed of us. That's why you're kind of lulled by these super apostles. But we're telling you that we have nothing to hide. Paul is saying the more that you scratch at us, you're not going to find anything different here. Paul's saying we don't shine in the ways that you would expect us, the ways that you would like us to shine. Not because that we've done anything shameful, but because we have been boldly who we are. In the same way, he says that Jesus didn't shine in the way that the, the disciples expected and anticipated him to shine. He was the light of the world who was rejected, rejected because he did not live up to the expectations of what they anticipated a Messiah to look like. That being said, let's go to the gospel quickly. Peter, James, and John, they've gone with Jesus up to this mountaintop, and suddenly Moses and Elijah appear. Suddenly they're there with Jesus, just chatting it up. And remember, Moses and Elijah, these are ambiguous figures. These are archetypal figures of the law, of covenant, of prophecy. And we should know, just as first century hearers of this story would have known, that both Moses and Elijah's lives end in a kind of question mark. Here you have Moses, this prophet who is called to lead the people into the promised land, and does he ever get there? No. He's this marker of the exodus, of leading people into the space that God has dreamed for them, and he's prevented from going. He sees it, but he can't enter it. Elijah, same kind of story, having never realized the fullness of God's promise. And he has to name a successor, just like Moses has to name a successor. They both have to point to somebody else to accomplish the thing that God had told them they were set out to accomplish. Moses chooses Joshua. Elijah chooses Elisha. Both of them are are towering figures in the history of Israel who never saw in its fullness what God set them out to do. But now here's Moses, and where is he? Standing on top of this mountain, where? In the promised land, in the place that God had always intended for him to be. Jesus has made possible the fulfillment of all of those unkept promises, all of those unrealized dreams. He's brought them into a salvation that they were not able to accomplish for themselves or by themselves. And here are the great prophets, Moses and Elijah pointing to Jesus as the true successor, as the only one who could actually bring God's promises to, Into fruition. So Moses and Elijah, they start chatting and they're talking with one another about a different kind of exodus. This is how we interpret them talking about a departure, remember. And in the first century, departure was another kind of euphemism for dying. Like we would say, passing away, they would talk about somebody's departure. And so here in the first century, they're talking about Jesus about to pass away. And here's where Peter interjects. And he says, let's make three dwellings right here. (laughs) Let's not go to Jerusalem. And again, it's this kind of satanic impulse that Peter seems to slip into more than once of saying, no, 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 that thing can't happen. Let's just stay right here. I'll build you three dwellings. This is great. In one sense, we shouldn't be too critical because we all have this same impulse. That when we hear about how salvation is going to come to us, when we realize that it only comes through death, death on a cross, our impulse is to resist those kinds of painful places in our lives. We all think that salvation can come another way, some other way, any other way. But we realize that that's just not true. Jesus insists Salvation looks like this. And if it's true for Jesus, it's true for us too. So long as we desire to be human in the way that Christ is human, salvation will always come through a dying of sorts. Again, what Paul is suggesting in 2 Corinthians is that that salvation, the kind of salvation that God imagines for us and offers us, comes through the dying that we do to our own ego, to our own pride, by refusing to protect our image and save face. On the other hand, Peter is somehow confronted by God's glory in Jesus face to face and yet somehow remains unchanged. His imagination doesn't change at all. And just like Moses, Peter is consumed by this same kind of fear to veil the glory that he has just witnessed, to protect it. Moses has God's glory shining from his face and he thinks he needs to protect it. Jesus comes shining in all of his glory and Peter thinks we need to protect it. Let's veil it, let's create a dwelling. Let's keep it right here. They both fall into the same pitfall. But what we see in Moses And what we see in Peter is that our temptation to veil and protect God's glory because of our own fear and our own insecurity will only inhibit the work that God wants to accomplish in us. Finally, this story ends in silence. And I think there's a kind of wisdom to be found at the silence of the apostles, The text says they kept silent and in those days told no one what they had seen. I think part of the wisdom here is the wisdom of the seasons, the wisdom of transition from one moment to the next. We're coming from a space of revelation and realization, the space of epiphany of who God is in Jesus. And now we're being led into a season of Lent a season of wilderness. We're invited in this moment to hold in ourselves what it is that God has done in us and for us, refusing to rush through what God is doing in us, and instead we allow it to take the time that it needs to shape in us until it's ready to be born out into the world. We would not do this on our own. None of us would ever choose this season of Lent for ourselves. But moving into a season like Lent is part of our work of maturity. As that text says, when you were young, you dressed yourselves, you put your own robe on and you went where you wanted to go. But there will be a day when someone else will dress you, will wrap a belt around you and lead you to the places where you do not want to go. That's Lent. Lent. but lent is a season of maturity for christians it's a season of being still making room for god in our lives it's not a diet plan don't set any (laughs) goals to lose weight over the next four six weeks that's not what this is about it's about making room for god in our lives by being those people who journey up the mountain, even if we're journeying by ourselves, seeking the God that we will find. So today, sanctuary. As we make this transition from one space to the next and our sanctuary community continues to transform, let's hear the words of Paul. That we are not a community built on protecting our image. No one here is interested in saving face. We're here to be transformed into the image of Christ. And then in silence, let's make room for the work that God is doing, for that work of God to take shape in our lives as we move into the wilderness of Lent. Amen.